the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Lina Abujamara. She's the author of Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. She'll be joining us later this hour. We'll also work our way through some of the day's news. For the city of Portland, Portland's crime and homelessness crisis are affecting the city's real estate market. Office buildings in downtown Portland are going on the market at an alarming rate. Said Todd Gooding, he's the president of the Scanlon Kemper Bard Companies, which invests in commercial real estate. It felt like a punch in the gut. Well, two years ago, they bought a 100,000 square foot Mason Arum Annex building in Northeast Fifth and Everett, right in the middle of Old Town, for $25 million. Well, now it's back on the market after tenants felt the area was unsafe. And so much of Portland feels unsafe to so many. They informed us that they're going to honor their lease, but they're moving out and they're not coming back. Well, the tenants still have four years left on the lease. Gooding even offered to pay for security escorts to and from work. We just feel let down by the city of Portland. We didn't realize the city would ignore the public safety concerns as long as they did. End quote. Mayor Ted Wheeler says that the community safety continues to be a top priority for the administration. He said he added increased police presence and bike patrols in Old Town, along with investments to help the area's economy. Gooding said his staff has called the city numerous times. Nobody will pick up the phone and respond. It's been pretty disappointing. So the economic fallout appearing in Portland. Meanwhile, two-thirds of Oregon counties, including Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas, are now in the high level of community transmission, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And yes, we're talking about COVID. It means they've reached a point where the agency recommends universal masking. Now, did you believe that would come back? Well, the COVID-19 community level is an updated county-level measuring system that the CDC deployed earlier this year, ranking every county as low, medium, and high, based on a combination of local hospitalization rates and new COVID cases, rather than the infection rate alone. Well, in the so-called high-level counties, the CDC recommends that everyone wear masks in indoor public places and on public transportation, regardless of their vaccination status, although it's not a mandate. People at higher risk of infection are also urged to consider avoiding non-essential public activities. In addition to the three Portland metro counties, the high-level counties in Oregon are Clatsop, Tillamook, Lincoln, Lane, Douglas, Josephine, Jackson, Klamath, Lake, Deschutes, Crook, Jefferson, Hood River, Wasco, Sherman, Morrow, Umatilla, Union, Wallawa, Baker, and Malheur. So pretty much the state. The Oregon Health Authority tweeted a screenshot of the CDC community levels map and the recommendation to wear masks indoors last week. The county level map was last updated on the 30th of June based on data from the preceding week. So it's not a mandate, but it's back. They're suggesting people wear masks. So whatever you decide is true about masks, you can decide for yourselves. Well, in a British bombshell, U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced his resignation after a whirlwind of ethics 
scandals. And the White House communications response is being slammed by reporters from Politico and The Washington Post, as well as CNN, calling it bad form. Whiteness and maleness. The Biden administration uses taxpayer cash to fund a study into kids' racial preferences. In a call for justice after the Highland Park shooting, a Chicago pastor advocates for the unseen victims in the city's violent South Side. Charging a failure to defend, GOP representatives say Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas has failed to defend our homeland and must be impeached. In a blunt message, senators ripped President Biden for his extraordinarily disappointing marijuana stance. Well, on the president's big bailout, the Biden administration unveiled details this week's this week, rather, of the final rules surrounding the federal bailout of hundreds of union pension plans passed as part of the Democrats one point nine trillion dollar American Rescue Plan Act coronavirus coronavirus relief package last year, saying it will secure workers benefits for decades to come. Well, the ARPA's special financial assistance program injects some $90 billion of taxpayer funds into the federal government's Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that ensures private sector pensions. Prior to the passage of the purported COVID package, the PBGC was set to become insolvent in 2026. Well, the White House claims the plan will prevent some 2.2 to 3 million workers from having their pension payments cut in retirement by saving upwards of 200 private sector union plans that had been in danger of insolvency. But some pension experts are skeptical of the plan and they're raising concerns. One sticking point is that the rules have changed to allow one third of the taxpayer funded funds to be invested in stocks which, according to the Wall Street Journal, overrides a previous restriction that generally limited them to investment-grade bonds. Charging they bent the rules, Georgia has opened an investigation into whether Democrats violated state electioneering laws. And public relations mirage, President Biden's education department, is being sued over its new parents' council that um, groups claim is a cabal of left-wing activists, excluding parents, saying the Times... Uh, knows nothing about me. Representative Mayra Flores fired back after the New York Times calls her a far right Latina in a very critical way. Unsubstantiated theory an MSNBC historian is being ridiculed for connecting the Highland Park shooter, Robert Crema, the third to Kyle Rittenhouse, saying there needs to be a national uh, ban. Highland Park Mayor Nancy Rottering. She touted her city and the state's gun control laws on MSNBC's The Readout Wednesday, just two days after a mass shooting at the Fourth of July parade that left seven people dead and dozens wounded. During her appearance, the mayor called for national gun control laws to prevent anybody from going to Missouri or Indiana, picking up whatever they want and coming back into Illinois, despite the alleged shooter buying the guns and passing background checks in her state of Illinois. In a real-life court drama, American WNBA star Brittany Griner is back in a Russian court to face drug charges as fear of a conviction looms. The shooter confessed to the Highland Park massacre, admitting to a second target in Madison, Wisconsin. ABC reports the 21-year-old accused of opening fire at a suburban Chicago Fourth of July parade, killing seven people and injuring dozens of others, plotted another attack in Madison, Wisconsin, authorities said on Wednesday after fleeing the scene of the parade, Robert Bobby Crema III was driving around, saw a celebration in Madison and contemplated another attack with 60 rounds on his body at that point, authorities said at a news conference yesterday. But he had done enough planning, hadn't done enough and decided not to do it, authorities said after returning from Wisconsin 
He was apprehended at a traffic stop in Lake Forest, Illinois, on Monday evening. He went into details about what he had done. He admitted to what he had done. The Lake County State's Attorney General told reporters outside the courthouse, we don't want to speculate on motives right now. He made the confession in a voluntary statement after being reminded of his right to remain silent, according to officials. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Lina Abujamara. She's the author of Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, a Democrat uh, consultant to the president, there is a leadership vacuum right now and he's not filling it. That's a quote. The Washington Post reports that in the view of many distraught Democrats, the country is facing a full blown crisis on a range of fronts and Biden seems unable or unwilling to respond with appropriate force. Democracy is under direct attack, they say, as Republicans change election rules and the Supreme Court rewrites American law shooting. Uh, Shootings are routine. A constitutional right to abortion is ended and Democrats could suffer big losses in the next election. The president's response is often a mix of scolding Republicans, urging Americans to vote Democratic and voicing broad optimism about the country. For some Democrats, that risk of is dangerous failure to meet the moment. And education is having a tough time bouncing back to in-person learning post-COVID. The Daily Wire reports that COVID-related lockdowns and remote learning arrangements have taken a a serious toll on students across America as rates of chronic absenteeism and other serious behavioral issues are rising, according to a new report. A study by the National Center for Education Statistics found that 72 percent of public schools over the past year reported higher rates of chronic absenteeism, defined as a student who misses at least 15 school days a year. This issue does not appear to be disproportionately affecting low-income or urban schools. As the organization results were, uh, the survey results were consistent across socioeconomic demographics. Schools with lower rates of student poverty reported a 73% increase in chronic absenteeism, and schools in rural areas experienced a 71% increase. Additionally, problems that stemmed from teachers being absent more often were exacerbated by the fact that 77% of public schools also reported that finding substitute teachers has become more difficult during the pandemic. Compared with the 2020-2021 school year, 61% of public schools reported that finding substitute teachers is difficult. Well, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream is suing the parent company, Unilever, for selling ice cream in Israel. One week after its parent company found a way to get Ben and Jerry's ice cream sold in East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank, the company known for its stance on social issues almost as much as it is for Chunky Monkey ice cream is suing to block that from happening. Unilever announced that it was selling its interest in the Vermont ice cream maker to its Israeli licensee which would market Ben & Jerry's products with Hebrew and Arabic labors, labels. rather. Ben & Jerry's fired back this week in a Manhattan federal court. The Unilever's maneuver poses a risk to the integrity of its brand. It claims the deal violates the 2000 acquisition agreement that allowed Ben & Jerry's to continue its progressive social mission independently of business decisions made by Unilever. Fox News tops ratings for the 72nd straight week. Americans flocked to the channel last week as the network had the largest basic cable audience among both total viewers and key demographics. 
Fox News arranged one point, um, or rather averaged 1.4 million total viewers, finishing the week of June 27th through the 3rd of July as the only basic cable network to surpass the 1 million viewer benchmark. Fox News also topped all cable networks during the primetime hours of 8 to 11. Eastern Time, averaging 2.1 million primetime viewers compared to 1.4 million for number two MSNBC. As uh, Fox News dominated CNN and MSNBC viewership leading up to the 4th of July, it finished as the most watched cable news channel for the 72nd straight week. An effort to recall Los Angeles uh, DA George Gascon is preparing to deliver more than 700,000 signatures to county officials and an FBI MI5 joint presser warned against Chinese espionage. Dutch farmers were fired, uh, well, fired on by police for protesting environmental laws. The Federalist reports that on Monday, dozens of farmers and trucks and tractors parked outside major supermarket distribution centers in cities throughout the country. The blockade comes on the heels of a convoy protest, approximately 40,000 farmers in the central Netherlands agricultural heartland last week, which clogged up local roadways and led to standstill traffic. As Reuters reported, the demonstrations came in response to targets uh, introduced last month by the Dutch government to reduce harmful nitrogen compounds by 2030, which authorities say are necessary to uh, emissions of nitrogen oxide from farm animals, manure and from the use of ammonia in fertilizers. If successfully implemented, the state initiative to go green would almost certainly cripple the country's private agricultural industry, as the regulations are expected to include reducing livestock and buying up some farm uh, farms whose animal produce uh, produce large amounts of ammonia. President Biden and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris spoke with uh, Brittany Griner's wife, assuring her that they're taking action to free her from a Russian prison. She pled guilty earlier today. UK's prime minister has resigned amid a brewing number of scandals involving himself and members of his cabinet. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced his resignation today. This marks uh, quite the fall for Johnson, who just three years ago led his conservative party to its largest parliamentary majority in over three decades. Yep, the writing was on the wall after Johnson barely survived a no contest, uh, no confidence vote from his uh, own party just weeks ago. Much of the angst around him began during the covid pandemic when he, along with other members of his party, were caught partying while health restrictions were in place. Now, if that was the case here in the U.S., there will be several other resignations, but not so much here. Then there was a cascade of scandals involving members of his cabinet led to several resignations as newly appointed British Treasury um, chief and uh, a close Johnson ally put it uh, put it in a letter to him. This is not sustainable and it will only get worse for you, for the conservative party and most importantly, for all of the country. The Biden administration is suing Arizona over its citizenship requirement to vote. In an attack against voting rights, Joe Biden's Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against Arizona over its recently passed law requiring voters to provide proof of U.S. citizenship to vote in federal elections. The Department of Justice claims that the law scheduled to take effect on the 1st of January violates both the 93 National Voter Registration Act and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Kristen Klain, or Clark rather, Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, asserted that the law turns the clock back on progress by imposing unlawful and unnecessary requirements that would block eligible voters from the registration rolls for certain federal elections. Senator Tom Cotton blasted the administration, saying Biden couldn't care less about the crime wave 
uh, record overdoses or the spike in murders, but a citizenship requirement, top priority for DOJ. You can't make this up, end quote. Meanwhile, in a move that both underscores the president's motive behind his de facto open border policy and highlights why the Department of Justice is objecting to the Arizona law, the Department of Homeland Security is eliminating an eligibility rule on its U.S. citizenship application that requires some um, some who had entered the country illegally to remain outside the U.S. for 10 years prior to application. The administration is now effectively adopting a don't ask, don't tell provision. Former U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services head Emilio Gonzalez called it sheer craziness. Elizabeth Warren demands crisis pregnancy centers be stopped. Katie Pavlich points out that the Massachusetts Democrat senator is declaring war on crisis pregnancy centers in her state while lamenting the fact they outnumber abortion clinics three to one. Last week, she introduced legislation to crack down on pro-life clinics that help pregnant women in crisis. RNC Research reports the Democrat senator, uh, we need to, to put a stop to crisis pregnancy centers right now, quoting uh, the senator. The Capitol Hill, Christopher Bedford uh, Senior editor of The Federalist says the Capitol Hill Crisis Pregnancy Center helps women and infants who need help. They give emotional, spiritual and material support to the poor, the struggling and the neglected. For this, they're hated. And the Democrat senator from Massachusetts is an abortion absolutist. She was one of the most emotionally incontinent lawmakers following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade. However, unlike the uh, Democrat colleagues who aimed much at the of the vitriol at the court and the Republicans, Warren has taken it a step further and attacked those very organizations that the pro-abortion crowd loves to claim don't exist. Pro-life pregnancy centers. One of the dubious arguments pro-abortion advocates make is that if abortion is outlawed, no one will help women with unwanted pregnancies. However, pro-life pregnancy centers have long existed and have only grown over the decades. According to Warren, however, these centers are suddenly a, a major problem that the federal government must target. Her bill is absolutely Orwellian in nature as it falsely smears pro-life pregnancy centers as having engaged in misinformation. If passed, her legislation would penalize those organizations with a fine of up to $100,000 or 50% of the revenues earned by the ultimately parent um, entity for violating the bill's uh, prohibition on disinformation related to abortion. And by the way, those services are provided for free. Uh, They receive no public funds. It's a blatant violation of the First Amendment, but it also underscores the fact that pro-abortion advocates cannot win their argument on the merits or the truth surrounding abortion, which is the killing of an innocent pre-born human being. Therefore, Warren is resorting to efforts to silence pro-life voices via the heavy hand of government. It is fundamentally un-American as well as deeply regrettable. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next, a conversation with the author of Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. Lina Abu-Jamara, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is a pediatric ER doctor who left her scandal-ridden church and ended up in a crisis of faith. She says, my faith began a slow deconstruction into disbelief. And in her book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction, she says she believes her own crisis is not so unfamiliar to many Christians who struggle to rectify their beliefs with their circumstances. And she lifts five things that led to her own struggles and then unpacks each one of them with precision, the precision of a surgeon. 
Pain has a way of revealing who you really are and what you really believe, she says. Pain doesn't destroy your faith. It simply exposes it. Well, her book is titled Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. And my guest, Lena Abu-Jamara, is a pediatric ER doctor, now practicing telemedicine and founder of Living with Power Ministry. Her, uh, ver- her vision, rather, is to bring hope to the world by connecting biblical answers to everyday life. A popular Bible teacher, podcaster, and conference speaker, she's the author of several books, including the book we'll be talking about today. She ministers to singles through her Moody radio show, Today's Single Christian, and is engaged in providing medical care and humanitarian help to to Syrian refugees and others in disaster areas. Born in Beirut, Lebanon, she now calls Chicago her home and joins us today by phone to talk about her book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. Dr. Abu Jamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Georgina. I appreciate the time and uh, happy to discuss this topic that's becoming a big fad in the church these days. It certainly is. In fact, the word deconstruction, uh, deconstruction is relatively new. It, it, the phenomenon isn't new, but the, the use of the word is. Can you explain how this, um, this loss of faith, uh, how it comes about or what this deconstruction means? Absolutely. You know, um, we didn't have a word for it when when I was going through it, honestly, it's in the last few years that I think it, uh, my first sort of come to terms with that term came after Joshua Harris uh, came, uh, made the statement that he was no longer, you know, sort mm-hmm. of the same type of Christian, at least that he was. I don't know where he stands in the faith now. But I remember being sort of shaken up by it and thinking, wow, like, what does that mean? And, and of course, you know, people have, have analyzed the word itself. And, of course, the roots of it are uh, from uh, a philosopher back uh, about, he, I think, died in 2004, but somewhere in the mid, mid-1900s, he came up with a term uh, that was sort of more focused on um, literary words and meanings and sort of dismantling words and never quite knowing, you know, the intent of him, you know, sort of not being so dogmatic about the meaning of things. And, and, and now I think the word is used much more loosely, to, I think, to signify more of a crisis of faith, sort of a dark mm-hmm. night of the soul. Now, now, what I found, and I think the confusing part is when you read the word deconstruction in social media and when you see the use of it, often you're hearing it from people who have fallen on the side of deconversion. And so I think it's easy to sort of get in this world where when you hear someone go through deconstruction, you go, oh, they don't believe anymore. That's not my story. I definitely deconstructed, but I am in the faith now, and I talk about the process of deconstruction that for me led to a result that was not deconversion. On the contrary, I was able to weed through sort of some of the things that I thought I believed about church, particularly for me, the crisis grew out of watching a scandal in, a, in my church, a mega church in Chicago. There were more than one in Chicago. I was a part of a church for a long time that was the first to unravel and that there was such a toxicity in leadership. And so a lot of what I believed about church and calling and leadership and God sort of were put to task. And I walked away a little bit confused, a lot angry. And for a few years, I think I sort of wrestled with what does it mean to be a biblical Christian? Because those that I trusted should have modeled it were not. And so it almost unraveled my faith. But by God's grace, I fell on the side the result has not been deconversion. But I would still say that those years were years of deconstruction where I questioned a lot of what I had held to be so true for so long. You suggest that it's not a matter of if, but when we'll have a crisis of faith. Is this a, a, a season in which one has to come to terms with what you think the faith is about or who you think God is and reconciling that with who he actually is? 
explain what you mean by that, that it yeah. is virtually inevitable that at some point we're going to have to confront our misconceptions, if you will. Again, you go back to sort of like where you land on things. They say, I think this, I was, I was just reading about this today, putting together some thoughts. And I think I came across, again, this percentage of 40 to 42 percent of adults uh, will at some point change what they've believed. And, and in co- that sort of change has been described in the past. People who, like, let's say, were atheists and turned to Christ or, or vice versa, you know, ch- big changes in, in their views. Um, what I see now happening is sort of is different. It's in the evangelical church. You see this movement of people who are questioning what they used to believe. And I think that's a lot harder to, to sort of sense how many people really are going through that. And I do agree with you. I think that when you, or at least what, I, what, I, what you mentioned that I said, which is sort of this concept that I think that a lot of what we are calling now deconstruction has um, overlap with what I think has been in the past described as a faith crisis or a dark night of the soul. And so why now the language of deconstruction has happened is mainly because many of the quote-unquote famous voices of people, again, I mentioned Joshua Harris, there's others who have said, hey, we've deconstructed, we no longer believe what we used to believe. There was a famous rapper that I had not been familiar with till recently that had a very big thing recently, maybe about six months ago or so, where he actually says, I now consider myself an apostate. Those are dramatic shifts, Mm -hmm. being a follower of Jesus. We have not seen that shift as dramatically in the past. People have come to Christianity to believe in Jesus. That's been a big story, but not the other way around. What has been common in the church People who do what happened to Jacob in Genesis, where you wrestle with God, you go through seasons of not understanding what God's doing, of, of being set up for disappointment because of false expectations you have about who you want God to be, and maybe who you've seen Him modeled. I think this has been a big cancer in uh, American Christianity, which is we've seen uh, the last 20, de- two, you know, 20 years, two decades of, of leadership that has modeled a Christianity that is not biblical, Christianity that values comfort and self and promotion, and big platform, and everything I want, I get now. And I think there's been a sort of a prosperity message to that that has led us to think that we are owed certain things in our Christian faith that are not biblical. And so that crisis of faith has become very common. But in social media, I think because now everyone talks about their experiences so openly and and, and their words given that maybe in the past we haven't attributed to certain, certain phenomenons, I think that word deconstruction has taken kind of a big push forward. And, and I think it's been confusing. In fact, even trying to come up with a definition of it is confusing. Derrida, the guy who came up with the word himself, wouldn't. You, it's hard for you to even find specifically what he thinks it is, just to give you an idea. So I think the importance is to focus less on the word and more on the process of what's happening, which is sort of a rattling in your soul as to where's God when I need him the most. You write about five things that, and you list uh, that almost destroyed your faith. What are those five things, and are they relatively common among those who struggle? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I go through them in the book, but in essence, the first is a, a basic one that I think is intuitive, suffering. You know, this question of where is God in my pain, and why did my life end up this way? When people ask that question, it is rooted in, in suffering. You don't like what's happening. You're hurting. For me, the pain happened after I left my church because I felt so isolated, so alone, and and. You know, even that, talking about, oh, I left my church, can sound so benign and mild to someone who might not understand the depth of commitment that Christians can have to their mm-hmm. church, how it becomes your world. Like for me, I was a single Christian who had devoted her life to serving the Lord. In fact, I found solace in my service to God, but because I wasn't married, I felt like that's why I wasn't married, because I was, I was really God was saving me to, to serve Him. And, and so there was so much that I had sort of come to embrace and believe about maybe what God would do. So it felt like deep suffering when the very place that I thought I would find comfort became a place of pain. The other one is tied to that is expectations. I think so much of what we're suffering with in the Christian life 
is rooted in false expectations. Mm-hmm. We are to have expectations of Christian faith. We just have the wrong ones. And then, of course, tied to that is sort of this concept of rejection, where you feel not so simply, oh, people don't want me, but I'm not sure God wants me. And I think when you go through what I see in, in my life now, I look back, I think there was some form of spiritual abuse happening in our church where the toxic leadership sort of really took a hit on, on how people were treated. And, and I think looking back, I think there's a sense like, like that God had rejected us because because when, especially when I first left, I didn't see visibly that God was, let's just use the word, quote unquote, punishing the leaders who are guilty. And so for a while, it felt like God was siding with them against us, right? Who, and, and I'm not, I, in fact, I tease that out in the book about talking even about the fourth word is justice and fairness and sort of this idea, like God didn't seem fair. It felt like he had rejected me. So this concept of rejection, um, it, ironically, Georgian, what ended up happening was that God used this, this segue of, what, five to seven years of, of sort of walking in a dark tunnel to redirect my ministry, where I used to just be in ministry to women in the church, and now we have a global work. We, I'm going tomorrow, in fact, to Lebanon to work with Syrian refugees. Uh, I go four times a year. We've got a year-long medical, you know, we run clinics year-round, and now we just expanded to the Ukrainian refugees to do work there. So what is initially looked at as rejection, God actually can use to redirect you, and so justice, rejection, expectation, suffering, and the fifth is surrender. What does it really mean to surrender? And and I think sometimes the the, the, the false teaching is that when you surrender something to God, it's like you're giving up on it. And so there's sort of a, a sadness that comes in that where I think that undermines the goodness of God, because when you understand how good God is, surrendering to someone who is good is not a hard thing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a gift. And I think those are concepts that I really had to reframe and, 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 and separate sort of what I saw modeled in this prosperity-driven. By the way, they wouldn't call themselves prosperity-driven. It was a very conservative church but that was modeling this prosperity Christianity by the way that they were pursuing the American dream at a cost. And, and I had to separate from that and understand and, and accept and, and delight in what it really means to be a follower of Jesus and to be completely satisfied with him. We're talking with Lena Abu-Jamra. She is a medical doctor and uh uh, heads a uh, ministry as well. We're going to continue our conversation on her book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Lena Abu-Jamra. She is a pediatric ER doctor. She now practices telemedicine and is the founder of Living with Power Ministries. We're talking about her latest book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction, in which she not only writes about her own crisis of faith, but how she made her way back to a vibrant faith that she now uh, not only practices, but is involved in ministry as well. Um, How does pain reveal who we really are and what we really believe? And how does God use that to bring us closer to himself and perhaps to have a better, a biblical understanding of what faith really means? Well, as an ER doctor, I've always observed, and, and I believe it to be true, that pain really shows who you are as a person. You know, I mean, when you're hurting, the truth comes out and, and your beliefs come out and people will give you a lot of slack in the ER because they know you're hurting. But the same is spiritual, spiritually true when you're hurting. And this is, by the way, why I believe at the root of a deconstruction is not an intellectual phenomenon. It's really a heart phenomenon. It's a soul problem. It's, it's really hurt. And what comes out when you're hurting is 
you know, you can say all you want. I believe God is good all the time, all the time God's good. You can say all, all your life how much you believe the Bible, but when you're hurting, where do you turn to to get rest? Where do you turn to for comfort? And I think m- m- most Christians would do well to observe their patterns because I think we'd be able to see how little we actually believe in the goodness of God by how we are responding to the pain in our life. And so I think pain is diagnostic. It doesn't change what we believe. It just reveals what we believe. So it's a gift in many ways. It's a gift that God gives us to be able to diagnose where we are with him. And it's a gift that also, ironically, leads us to him. Because typically, um, you might get by on when you're hurting a little, trying to fix it on your own, and you might get by numbing the pain like so many of us try to do with a million different ways, uh, some good, some bad. By the way, some people numb it with healthy things like exercising and, you know, getting on crazy diets, but it's all about controlling the outcome. But really, ultimately, if we hit a point of too much pain, of extreme pain, then we only have really one place to look at that point. And uh, for me, that's really what happened is I got to a place where I was hurting so much, feeling so alone, and really the numbing plan didn't work. I, I was still hurting and still didn't have answers, still felt so unmoored from everything that I thought should have happened in my life. And I hit a place finally where I, I, I thought, that's it. Like, God, either you do something, either you, you show yourself or I'm done. And it was a point of turning to him, which ironically, and I talk about this in the book, you know, a lot of people want to know, well, what, what's the secret formula? How'd you come back to faith? You know, and, and, and I, I don't think there's a secret formula. I, I think this is the hard part of, of the concept of surrender is it's a process where you yield, where you give up and, and there is no clear-cut one, two, three American, you know, mm-hmm. solution, which we all want and like, that sells really well in the bookstores, but ultimately leaves you empty because it's not like that. It's a relationship where you have to find God in the darkness, and somehow His light penetrates where it's darkest. And honestly, for me, I, I, it's so cheesy in some ways, but it goes back to the Bible. I mean, for years, I think for two or three years, I taught the Bible. I, I could make Bible studies, but I just didn't feel connected to the Bible. I mean, I never stopped running this ministry, but I felt so disconnected from God. And so for a season, I stopped reading it very carefully. I was just like, open it, close it. And, and then one day I just felt so empty, so alone. And I just randomly opened it with a cry in my heart, like, God, you got to do something. And and really it was his word. It was Psalm 22, I believe, that that it was a pivot point for me. And it was a psalm of lament. And it was the one where Jesus, it's about Jesus. And it's the psalm that says, God, why have you forsaken me? And I, I just could see that even in the worst place that I had landed, God was still there. And just really was so parallel to the story of Jacob in, in Genesis where he's wrestling with God and he just can't let go, but he doesn't know how to finish this thing. And he's upset, but he's, he's afraid and he can't even tease out his emotions. And at the end, he just lets go. Of course, he comes out with a broken hip, but he's transformed forever. It just felt very much like that. It was mm-hmm. a turning point for me. Now, now, what magic, and I think, again, this is the secret. People are like, oh, well, it's easy for you. Like, I still struggle. I talk about with people about this all the time. I still struggle every Sunday when I get ready to go to church. I go to church, but I'm telling you, like, it's hard. Church has become a a difficult phenomenon in post-COVID culture and this deconstruction era. Uh, Churches are weird. I have a lot of trust issues with church leaders. Like, it's very hard for me to, 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 I I wrestle with the Lord with that. How do you go back to, say, tithing, say, church when you doubt, you know, what's they're going to, are they going to use it correctly or not? And some good questions, by the way, those are not bad questions to ask, but I see the effect of the deconstruction process on me. And while I love the Lord, like I've ever, I mean, I love him so much, so deeply today, I feel like I'm in a good place with him, but I really wrestle with some of his um, people and yeah. systems. Yes. And, and it's a continuous process of wrestling. 
you we talked a bit about um, pain, but disappointment, I think, is a, akin to it in that it uh, mm-hmm. can oftentimes prevent us from pressing in and, and recognizing who God is. How does God use our disappointments to realign and reorder our lives? And was that a factor for you in returning to the faith, even though you still struggle with um, the abuse of authority that you have experienced in your yeah. past? I, disappointment is probably the theme in my, it's, I hate to say it because God has been really good to me. Like, I, I, I understand that intellectually. Like, I, I'm going to spend a week with Syrian refugees. Like, I get that I was an immigrant from Lebanon, that God gave me a place to go. I'm a doctor. I have a comfortable home. Like, I see those things. But it's the things that you want the most in your life that you haven't gotten. That's where it gets you, right? And you can have 99% of what you want in life, but if you're lacking the one, and, and you can talk all you want about contentment, that's a different debate. But there is a disappointment of, God, I thought you would come through in this. I prayed for all these years. I hoped, I really thought you'd come through, and, and he doesn't. And it just messes with you. And I honestly believe so many Christians wrestle with that because, you know, you, you thought you were doing the right thing when you married that person or when you, you know, put your kids in that school or however you want it, whatever the situation is. And when it doesn't work out, there is a deep aching disappointment. And it, that honestly, I, I think I talk a lot about that. I think that goes back to expectations. Every one of my books has really been about disappointment. I think my Christian theme has been trying to destroy this, this like the, if you can just destroy disappointment, and you can't do it quickly. You have to work through it. And the only way to work through it, in my humble opinion, has been to deeply see the goodness of God. And, and, and that has to happen with time. And mm-hmm. God reveals it. But I think this is the tension of Christianity. And this is, again, where we have hungered in the Christian, American Christian church for easy answers. Like, okay, tell me. Where God's good. Like, yeah, swallow that pill. Go on. Move on. But it's not like that because you show up after church to your home and you're still stuck with that person you married or you're still wrestling with that kid that's not doing what you want him to do. And you're disappointed because, God, I, I thought I brought him up in the way that you wanted me to. There's a verse that says that I, should, that I should have seen the fruit of that and we don't see it. And so there has to be a yielding, a surrender to the goodness of God. And ultimately, those who have deconverted have refused that, have to said, you know what, I don't believe God's good and I'm out. And, and their stories are loud and they're out there. And they're all over social media. You do not need to search too hard to find people who like forget Christianity. There's a whole hashtag on deconstruction on Instagram. And the theme is the same. And, and, and I think those of us like myself who have fallen back on the side of Jesus have not been able to get over the goodness of God. And I believe that is rooted in one phenomenon, and it is the cross where Jesus died for us. Everything else we've built into Christianity is added. It's all yeah. added goodness. It's all, but it goes back to you want to know the goodness of God. You've got to firmly put yourself at the foot of the cross and remember who He is and what He's done for you. Oh, that's so and if good. you cannot get over that, if you can, if I could not get over that, I could not get over Jesus. That's why I'm in faith today. And I pray that I never will either. I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. I do want to encourage our listeners. The book is titled Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. And if you are in the midst of that struggle, let me recommend the book. It's published by Moody and currently available. Uh, Lena Abu-Jamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, and we're glad to have you uh, with us. Before we get started, I want to let you know there's some upcoming concerts you need to be aware of. 
Uh, some great Christian concerts coming to our area. Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin coming up on the 20th at the Moda Center. That's coming right up. And our sister station presents Fish Fest at the Salem Riverfront Park, August the 20th, featuring Toby Mack, Mac Powell, we are Messengers, Cochran and Company, and Katie Nickel. James Blend is all up in Fish Fest, so um, come and support him and enjoy a great, great day of music. Everything you need to know about all of these shows um, with links to buy tickets is on our website, kpdq.com. So check that out. Keeping in mind, the 20th is coming right up for the Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin. So if you want to get in on that, time is short. Well, we want to continue our march through some of the news. The U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. He's going to remain on as prime minister until a new party leader is picked to succeed him, he announced earlier today. Not altogether surprising, although he has survived some scandals in the last several months. Our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader, declared Johnson. He admitted that it is painful not to see through so many ideas and projects. Well, he's stepping down after uh, much of his government, including many prominent members of his cabinet, abandoned him over the course of the last several days, calling on him to leave office in the wake of a series of scandals that have plagued the 10 Downing Street location and led to the erosion of public support for Johnson. The revolt within his party started after Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pitcher, who's, you know, probably not known to most of us. But anyway, he resigned last week after he was accused of groping two men. Johnson apologized for appointing Pitcher, um, despite being told about the allegations in 2019, saying hiring him was a mistake on Tuesday. Well, minutes after his admission, uh, the chancellor of um, I'm not even sure how to pronounce the word, but a chancellor the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, and the um, Tory vice chair all announced their resignations from Johnson's government. Well, the, um, uh, the leader has also been scrutinized for holding illegal parties in his office after imposing strict lockdowns on the rest of the country during the COVID-19 pandemic. He refused to step down after the scandal and survived a vote of confidence in June, which really wasn't as positive as he spun it. Johnson became prime minister in 2019 after winning a Tory leadership contest and secured his position in a landslide general election victory later that year, flipping many areas of the country that had long favored the Labor Party. He is out. He'll remain in position for the next several weeks. Some expect about six to eight weeks until a successor can be named. Meanwhile, the U.K. announced Thursday that it had seized sophisticated Iranian missiles from smugglers in the Gulf of Oman earlier this year. And what officials have pointed to as proof that Tehran is supporting Houthi rebels in Yemen. Well, with assistance provided by the U.S. Navy, the Royal Navy HMS Montrose completed two separate seizures from smugglers operating speedboats off the coast of Iran on the 28th of January and the 25th of February. In direct violation of a 2015 arms embargo enforced by the U.N. Security Council, the smugglers were found to have been carrying dozens of packages containing surface-to-air missiles and engines for land-attack cruise missiles. This is the first time a British naval warship has interdicted a vessel carrying such sophisticated weapons from Iran, the British Embassy in Washington uh, said in a statement. On both occasions, a Wildcat helicopter launched from the HMS Montrose and Scanning the area in a routine check found vessels speeding away from an Iranian coastline after pursuing the vessel or vessels in this case with the air support 
of a Seahawk helicopter from the U.S. Navy destroyer USS Gridley. British Marines approached the vessel by rigid-hulled inflatable boats before inspecting them. Dozens of packages containing advanced weaponry were discovered, confiscated, and brought back to HMS Montrose, according to the embassy. Well, the uh, British embassy also noted that the land attack uh, cruise missile, which has a range of about 620 miles, is regularly used by Houthi rebels in strikes against Saudi Arabia. Brittany Griner pleaded guilty to drug charges in a Russian court today. The two-time Olympic gold medalist was arrested in February for allegedly trying to bring vape cartridges containing oils derived from cannabis through a Moscow airport. Bad idea. I'd like to plead guilty, Your Honor, but there is no intent. I didn't want to break the law, she said in court earlier today. I'd like to give my testimony later. I need time to prepare, she added. Well, her guilty plea comes just one day after Russia's foreign minister said during a news briefing that the WNBA star would have the ability to appeal her verdict or apply for clemency. The foreign minister also disputed claims made by the U.S. that she was wrongfully detained on the 17th of February. The court must first deliver its verdict, but no one is stopping Brittany Griner from making use of the appeal procedure and also from requesting clemency. A spokesperson from the ministry said, adding that the attempts to present her case as um, though the American woman was illegally detained do not stand up to criticism. A Russian-born former U.S. intelligence officer and expert on Russia and Vladimir Putin said on Wednesday that it would be unlikely for Putin to grant Griner clemency in such a highly charged case and her detention uh, would more than likely be used as a bargaining chip for a prison swap or more. The president has said that he is attempting, he and his cabinet are attempting to free her from the Russian prison. Well, ABC lets uh, Reagan shooter John Hinckley advocate for gun control Twitter slammed the off the rails interview. Well, in addition to ABC giving the would be assassin an opportunity to express remorse, the outlet allowed John Hinckley Jr. to weigh in on gun control laws that were put in place by the U.S. government since he shot and wounded President Reagan. Several conservative Twitter accounts expressed shock and anger over the uh, network using the attempted Reagan assassin to promote gun control in a recent Nightline interview. Hinckley, who was recently released from 41 years of federal medical supervision for the attempted assassination of President Reagan, sat down with ABC News journalists um, uh, Juju Chang to talk about how he's changed and that he's um, he'd like society to acknowledge that. In addition to ABC giving, giving Hinckley an opportunity to express remorse, the outlet allowed him to weigh in on gun control laws that were put in place by the U.S. government since he shot and wounded the president, the interview aired Thursday evening or rather Tuesday evening, the day after the horrific mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, which claimed seven lives. Hinckley claimed that the mentally ill should not have access to firearms and made a blanket declaration that there are too many guns in America. Well, the White House uh, communications director, Kate Bedingfield, is stepping down. Raphael Warnock used campaign funds to fight a personal lawsuit, which is not lawful. Representative AOC sees fines pile up for her five-year-old unpaid tax warrant. And a Tulare County court commissioner signed an open, an order rather, to release two suspected drug traffickers recently arrested with 150,000 fentanyl pills in their possession. Officials arrested Jose 
uh, Zendayas, 25, and Benito Madrigal, 19, during a traffic stop on Friday and transported them to the Tulare County pretrial facility on charges of possession, transportation, and selling of illegal drugs. But they were released over the weekend. The Tulare County District Attorney's Office said in a statement that it was not involved with or agreed with the decision to release these individuals. The time in which they were released was after their arrest and prior to police reports being submitted to our office. Through a risk assessment by the county probation department, they were released by a judicial officer, end quote. Well, the sheriff, Mike Boudreau, he weighed in, also expressing concern with the suspect's release. This drug is brought in from China. It's produced in Mexico and brought across our border. This has nothing to do with an immigration issue. This has to do with the security and protection of our country. And because this fentanyl is clearly coming across our open border, we need to secure those borders, he continued. Investigators seized 150 packages of 1,000 fentanyl pills in each, enough to potentially kill several million people. Officials... Um, said each pill sells for about $5, meaning the bus netted about $750,000 worth of deadly drugs. The suspect's whereabouts is now unknown. And in another insulting and racist screed, the New York Times warns of the rise of the far-right Latina and African-American. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Texas Supreme Court on Friday blocked a lower court order that allowed abortionists in the state to continue seeing patients. Well, Texas has had an abortion ban in place that was unenforceable during the 50 years that Roe versus Wade legalized abortion. But after the court overturned Roe last week, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton warned that abortion providers could be criminally liable for providing abortion starting today. That was earlier this week because of Texas abortion prohibitions predating Roe. A Houston judge issued a ruling earlier this week allowing clinics to temporarily resume abortions up to six weeks into pregnancy. Paxson responded to the ruling by asking the Supreme Court uh, to temporarily put the order on hold. A hearing was scheduled later this month. Mark Heron. An attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights called the laws confusing, unnecessary and cruel after the Texas Supreme Court issued its order on Friday. Paxton celebrated the state Supreme Court's ruling on Saturday morning, calling it a pro-life victory. Our state's pre-Roe status banning abortion in Texas are 100 percent good law, he wrote in a tweet accompanied by a screenshot of the order. Litigation continues, but I'll keep winning for Texas unborn Babies. Meanwhile, five states have called special sessions to determine abortion law in the wake of Roe's reversal. The abortion law is now in the hands of the American people and their elected state leaders. That's precisely where pro-abortion forces did not want it to be. Already, 26 states have laws in place to protect the unborn and others are taking swift action to do likewise. Governors in South Dakota, Indiana, South Carolina and Nebraska have called for special legislative sessions to pass pro-life bills in response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's 1973 ruling legalizing abortion across the country. While many states already have protections for life on their books, our pro-life fight is only getting started. That's a quote from Jessica Anderson, executive director of Heritage Action for America. They're a grassroots affiliate of the Heritage Foundation, the parent organization of 
the Daily Signal. Well, states with either no laws or weak laws should follow the lead of other states like South Dakota, Indiana, South Carolina, and Nebraska in calling special sessions to put even more protections in place for unborn children, Anderson suggested. Well, the fight for life will be one of the most important issues of our lifetime, she added, and we should all demand our elected officials at both the state and federal levels take action to reflect our values and protect life, especially when we are met with radical proposals from Democrats in Congress, like abortion on demand, the states must be front line, the front line of defense. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker also called for a special session of state legislature, but to pass pro-abortion legislation and sending this back, remanding it back to the people is precisely what this um, debate, this actual debate is all about. Well, here's what you need to know about the special legislative sessions that are set or planned in South Dakota, Indiana, South Carolina and Illinois. In South Dakota, the same day the Supreme Court overruled Roe with a 5-4 decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and members of the state House and Senate announced plans to call the legislature to the Capitol for a special session. Today's decision will save unborn lives in South Dakota, but there is more work to be done, uh, the, the Republican governor said in a press conference on the 24th of June on the high court's decision. We must do what we can to help mothers in crisis know that there are options and resources available to them. Together, we will ensure that abortion is not only illegal in South Dakota, it is unthinkable. Well, South Dakota is one of more than a dozen states that passed pro-life legislation that was triggered into effect when the Supreme Court reversed Roe. Abortion, with few exceptions, effectively is legal in South Dakota post-Roe. Still, Noam said that more must be done to save babies and help mothers who face unexpected pregnancies or unsupported pregnancies. I like that phrase that the pregnancy resource centers use. In May, South Dakota Speaker Pro Tem A Republican wrote on Twitter that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, the state legislature would convene to debate new pro-life laws. During the special session, he pledged lawmakers would address seven specific pro-life priorities. I won't go into all of them, but the uh, dates of South Dakota's special legislative session have not yet been announced. In Indiana, the legislature will convene in Indianapolis for a special session this month. The Supreme Court's decision is clear, and it's now up to the states to address this important issue. Governor Eric Holcomb said in a written statement on the day of the decision, I've been clear in stating I am pro-life, the The governor said we have an opportunity to make progress in protecting the sanctity of life. And that's exactly what we will do in Nebraska. After the Supreme Court released its decision overturning Roe, Nebraska, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts said he intends to promote a culture of life in his state. Nebraska is a pro-life state. Uh, He told the Daily Signal in an email Thursday, I'm working with our speaker of the legislature to determine what more we can do to protect our preborn babies. Abortion currently is legal in Nebraska up to 20 weeks after fertilization. The governor has not yet formally called for the special session in Lincoln, the state's capital, but is expected to do so soon. In South Carolina... They prohibit abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, but the state legislature plans to take further action to protect life. In 2021, the legislature passed a bill banning abortion after the baby's heartbeat is detected. A court enjoined enforcement while the law was being challenged, but a federal court in South Carolina has permitted the law to take effect. Following the Supreme Court's ruling, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster issued a statement saying that he was committed to immediately begin work with members of the General Assembly to determine the best solution for protecting the lives of unborn South Carolinians. South Carolina's special legislative session in Columbia was set to begin today.
In Illinois, after news broke that the high court had overturned Roe, Pritzker said that he would call the state legislature in for a special session to pass pro-abortion legislation. Despite the action of the Supreme Court overturning Roe today, he said at the time, the right to safe, accessible, reproductive health care is in full force in Illinois and will remain so, Pritzker said in a formal statement. I am calling the General Assembly into special session in the coming weeks with the support and consultation of the House Speaker Emmanuel Chris Welch and Senate President Don Harmon, the governor said, together we are committed to taking swift action to further enshrine our commitment to reproductive health care rights and protections. Uh, Welch and Harmon, like Pritzker, are both Democrats. Illinois currently limits abortion after a baby is considered viable, usually around 24 weeks. So decisions are being made across the country about how this decision by the Supreme Court made on the 24th of June will be applied in their respective states. Meanwhile, Florida's 15-week abortion ban is now in effect after the court order blocking its enforcement rather was put on hold this week while Attorney General Ashley Moody swiftly appealed it. Planned Parenthood and other previously requested uh, that Leon County Circuit Court Judge John Cooper blocked the 15-week ban known as HB5, which includes exceptions, but not in cases of rape, incest, or human trafficking, from taking effect, arguing the state constitution guarantees access to abortion. Well, Judge Cooper ruled that the ban violates privacy protections in the state constitution, but that ruling was put on hold as soon as it was appealed. Florida previously allowed abortions up to 24 weeks. In Mississippi, where the Dobbs versus Jackson health care organization overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey on June the 24th, a judge declined to block the abortion ban. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the state's only abortion facility, has now closed. Mississippi is one of at least 13 states with trigger laws designed to ban or restrict abortions once the court overturned Roe versus Wade, as it did in a case upholding a different Mississippi law banning abortion, or rather barring it, after 15 weeks. And while judges in Kentucky, Louisiana, and Utah have temporarily blocked bans from taking effect, the state's high court in Texas has allowed pre-Roe ban to go into effect, as mentioned earlier. As of the start of June, nine states have pre uh, row abortion bans in place. They are Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Michigan, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Thirteen have trigger laws, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Four have passed an amendment declaring their state constitution does not secure or protect the right to abortion or allow use of public funds. Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and West Virginia, uh, Kansas, uh, have similar state constitutional amendments on the ballot later this year. According to a recent report by Guttmacher Institute, the research arm of Planned Parenthood, over 930,000 abortions were performed in the United States in the year 2020, an 8% increase from abortions performed in 2017. That means in 2020, one in five pregnancies ended due to an abortion, and 54% of those were attributed to chemical abortions. Chemical abortions are now more accessible after Food and Drug Administration permanently lifted the in-person dispensing requirement for abortion pills in 2021, following a temporary lift during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Meanwhile, with Congress set to return from its Independence Day recess rather to a political landscape rocked by the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe, Democrats are planning to make abortion a top priority in their busy legislative agenda. It does not include amending the U.S. Constitution. Since there is no constitutional right to abortion found there as it currently stands, a, um, an amendment would remedy that if there's motivation among those who support abortion. Well, in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, five justices, three appointed by former President Trump, ruled to elect uh, that elected representatives may make abortion law, including completing uh, bans of the practice. Said Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, today is one of the darkest days our country has ever seen. Really, one of the darkest days our country has ever seen. It trumps slavery. It trumps the Civil War. It trumps uh, World Wars One and Two. It trumps all of that. And simply what the Supreme Court said is there's no constitutional right, but the states can decide to do what they want to do. This is, according to Chuck Schumer, one of the darkest days our country has ever seen. Millions upon millions of American women are having their rights taken away from them by five unelected justices on the extreme MAGA court. That's the phrase that they've now chosen um, leading up to the midterm elections. Well, the truth is the states will decide. Uh, women in those states have the, the opportunity to influence lawmakers in their respective states uh, to do what is uh, important to them. He went on to say the Supreme Court, in effect, corrected an error. Actually, he didn't say that. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, from Kentucky said the Supreme Court, in effect, corrected an error when in 1973 the court simply found something in the Constitution that was not there. What this decision does is simply return this very sensitive issue to the people's representatives. Well, that is not where the pro-abortionists want it to be, where the people decide what they want in their respective states. Uh, In any event... Uh, Democrats are plotting legislative response to protect abortion rights after the Supreme Court's decision. And the president has gone so far as to say we should waive the filibuster for this singular case. And we'll see uh, uh, what happens next and we'll certainly follow with great interest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. For those of you who want to save big on Christian school tuition, hey, I've got good news. If you'd like to send your kids to a Christian school this fall but worry about the tuition cost, Well, we might be able to help. You can save up to 40% on tuition at two fine schools, Cornerstone Christian Academy and Grace Lutheran School. Availability is limited, so go to kpdq.com, click on the Listener Savings tab at the top of the homepage for more information, and save big on Christian school tuition. We're looking through uh, some of the news stories and what's happening in our culture today, given decisions made recently by the Supreme Court and uh, and. Elsewhere, uh, I appreciated Kevin Williamson writing an article earlier this month titled Lessons from the Left's Implosion, in which he reflects on what we're witnessing uh, prior to the announcement of the Supreme Court, the formal announcements, the legal announcement of the Supreme Court's decision and the uh, the days that have followed. He writes that when all your power is invested in a handful of institutions, losing one of them is a devastating setback. 
far better to eschew fanaticism and build a broad based movement. That would be the better approach. He writes, our friends on the left thought that they had a lock on the Supreme Court. What they actually had a lock on was a very narrow slice of elite opinion, which was just as good as having a lock on the Supreme Court right up until it wasn't. Progressives had in many ways been victims of their own success because they have been so very effective in colonizing critical institutions, the universities, the media, and for a generation, the Supreme Court. They've not spent much time sharpening their arguments and where progressives have not faced effective external opposition to their agenda, they have predictably become intellectually flabby and morally thin. They've howled like wounded coyotes when Dobbs leaked and uh, then set about arguing amongst themselves about whether abortion was a woman's issue or a birthing person's issue. And predictably, they overlooked entirely that American women are about as likely to be anti-abortion as American men are and that the pro-life movement has long been carried forward under largely female leadership. Abortion is a bedrock Democrat um, position, but Democrats are uh, discomfited trying to actually talk about it with anybody who isn't already a true believer. Among other things, almost no one has made any serious effort to defend Roe on constitutional grounds because there really is no constitutional defense of it. There are Democrats who know this and can't say it, and there are Democrats who don't know it and wouldn't say it if they did. As a result, Democrats have immediately been reduced to ridiculous handmaid's tale posturing and retailing a risable lies that women are going to end up going to death row over miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies. From about the time of the Brown decision until Dobbs, progressives had been confident that they could rely on the Supreme Court to make policy for them in those cases, those very frequent cases in which they are unable to rely on Democrats to uh, implement progressive policies by the ordinary means of winning elections and passing laws. A good deal of that Supreme Court policymaking has been deficient or at least questionable as a matter of constitutional jurisprudence. But the strictly legal questions about uh, often have been uh, put aside by progressives and in many cases by Americans at large who were satisfied with the results of a social outcome rather than a legal outcome. For example, there was much to criticize about the Brown decision, or rather the Brown's decisions, and it probably would have been better for the country if the desegregation of our schools had been achieved uh, through school boards and school legislatures and the like. But it also was the case that the pre-Brown regime of de jure segregation was an enormity uh, enormity that uh, could not be permitted to stand. But the legal and political position of African Americans is a unique question in American life, and Supreme Court policymaking has ranged well beyond that urgent consideration. The so-called right to abortion was exnihilated into existence in 1973, taking a contentious social question out of its proper context, political debate and elections, and making it into an extraordinarily divisive national issue, implicating not only the question of abortion per se, but also the broader question of where real political power resides and who is entitled to wield it. It had the unhappy effect of folding all disputes about two branches of government, the executive and the judiciary, into the single question of who holds the presidency. But Democrats were happy to see the court settle into this super legislative role because they were convinced that the that the court was going to give them what they demanded in most cases, which indeed is reliably did and would have continued to do if the likes of Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor had remained in the majority. 
Even as the originalist textualist school of jurisprudence came to prominence and veterans of the Federalist Society rose through the judicial ranks, progressives could count on Supreme Court to do their bidding. Only a little more than a decade passed between the Supreme Court nullification of state sodomy laws in Lawrence and its discovery of a constitutional gay marriage mandate in Obergfeld. Democrats who accuse Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett of lying about their views on Roe should go back and see the Elena Kagan had to say about the question of constitutional mandate for gay marriage in her confirmation hearings. There isn't anything about abortion or same-sex marriage in the Constitution, and there is some very direct and plain language about the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Ask a progressive why it is that abortion rights advocates shouldn't be obligated to go through the ordinary political process of securing their policy preferences through elections and lawmaking, or why gay marriage advocates should not have been expected to do the same, or why the actual text of the Bill of Rights should be ignored when it comes to gun rights. You will rarely get any kind of real answer. You'll get something very close to because the great pumpkin says it must be so. This will be followed by tears and by morally confident declarations that anybody who disagrees is a racist and a sexist and a gay hater and a whatever else. Public opinion is a funny thing. The majority of Americans say that they support Roe and at the same time say they oppose the abortion regime that Roe once imposed. A seeming contradiction explained by the fact that Americans never really understood that Roe said Uh, what it said, and what Dobbs now says. I do not believe that majorities sanctify bad policies, but if you look at where Americans actually come down on the abortion question, liberal in the first trimester, increasingly skeptical thereafter, generally supportive of certain exceptions, they are a lot closer to Ron DeSantis than they are Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Why shouldn't the law look more like what Americans would have voted for pre-Dobbs and now, thanks to Dobbs, what Americans will vote for? Again, Democrats generally cannot answer the question. Democracy is sacred except when it produces results that Democrats do not care for. The broad public has a pretty moderate opinion on abortion and the law and educate uh, educated and affluent trend uh, tend rather to be more pro-abortion the bellwethers of elite opinion such as editors of the new york times are radically to the left of the median voter the typical elite law school graduate is pro-abortion but may have been skeptical of roe the tippy top of the legal uh, profession who make up the majority of the supreme court today have a different and in this case a more in Um, intelligent view. Progressives were good at persuading the editors of the New York Times, and conservatives were good at persuading the very deep bench of originalist, textualist judges and potential judges who filled the majority of the Supreme Court seats and a large and growing share of the uh, federal judiciary. One of those approaches worked better than the other, and one of those approaches has more of a future than does the other. It seems to be only now occurring to progressives how heavily they had leaned on the Supreme Court to act as their um, cat's paw and how little work they had done to try not only to secure the maximum possible number of Democratic appointments to the court, but more important, to defend and fortify the intellectual position on that um, uh, made those activist judges such reliable progressive policymakers for all those decades. And if only now seems to really be becoming clear to them. Uh, what they have lost by failing to defend that intellectual ground, not only the Roe regime, but also much of the progressive activist thinking that made it and similar decisions possible, far-reaching regulatory power and a practically unlimited administrative state. If progressives are shocked by this, and they are shocked, it's because they made the mistake of thinking that convincing the editors of the New York Times was sufficient. 
Well, it goes on from there, making reference to John Steinbeck, who once observed the United States doesn't have uh, any self-admitted proletariat. In some parts of the world, the left is a genuinely working class political coalition. But in the United States, it isn't. Our working classes, if you will forgive the phrase, are a good deal more socially conservative than the women with, well, I'm not even going to go into that because I don't want to go into the detail. We need to take a break, so I'll leave it at that. But I think the point uh, the point is uh, is made. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, multiple Texas counties on Tuesday will declare that the um, migrant crisis at the southern border is an invasion. A move that could lead to similar declarations across the state. Uh, Kenny County Judge Tully Sahan is expected to announce the move at a news conference, along with a number of other officials from other counties uh, who joined him. Kenny County Attorney Brent uh, Smith said that uh, he believes approximately 12 to 15 counties could end up having declared an invasion by the end of the month. With migrant numbers hitting historic levels and with more than 239,000 encounters in May alone, there's been considerable talk in conservative circles about the merits of declaring the crisis an invasion, which could open up a number of potential legal avenues for states. Former Office and Management and Budget Director Russ Voigt and former Acting Deputy DHS Secretary Ken Cuccinelli, both now at the Centers for Renewing America, have urged governors to make the declarations and use war powers to order Arizona's police or National Guard to remove illegal immigrants to Mexico themselves. They have pointed to language in Article 1 of the Constitution, which allows for states to engage in war when it's been actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay without the approval of Congress. They also note Article 6 um, says that the U.S. shall protest each state or protect rather each state against invasion. Well, the idea scored a major win in February when Arizona Attorney General Mark Bronovich issued a legal opinion declaring the uh, crisis an invasion, arguing that the definition contained under the U.S. Constitution is not limited to hostile foreign states and can include hostile non-state crises. We'll follow that story as it develops. Well, the ongoing Marxist takeover of Latin America netted its biggest prize so far this month when Colombia elected a former terrorist president. This onslaught, long in the making, threatens our national security and is peaking uh, when we can least afford it. Gustavo Petro, a former M-19 guerrilla and controversial Bogota mayor, now leads this key U.S. regional ally following a narrow victory. Petro was promised to democratize unproductive private land. Newspeak euphemisms for land grabs to redistribute private pensions and to halt new oil and gas production. He insists that he will not outright expropriate land, but that the government will hike taxes on land holdings that it uh, considers unproductive and that if the owners can't pay, he will forfeit it to the government. So it's sort of a kinder, gentler way of confiscating the land. Communists understand perfectly well what he means. The Marxist website in defense of Marxism called Petro's victory a turning point in the class struggle of our country in which the capitalist oligarchy has typically played the role of executioner with impunity. In Caracas, uh, Nicolas uh, Maduro whose Marxist dictatorship uh, has ruined Venezuela, duly announced that a new era has starting started in a neighboring country. Colombia, uh, they will uh, they all get is now finally firmly in the revolutionary orbit, ready to be an ally of China, Russia, Iran, Cuba and all other U.S. 
enemies. This is, in other words, a big deal. Hugo Chavez, then a member of the parliament, his M-19 macro-terrorist group having disbanded in 1990, um, uh, who brought Chavez to Bogota in 94, five years before Chavez's own um, election. Um, Petro was a member of parliament at that time. Colombia's Marxist terrorist narco-trafficking complex became a key ally to Chavez and then to Maduro after Chavez's death in 2013. Well, Petro has also long been a member in good standing for the uh, another Marxist group of governments and non-state actors with the help um, which helps rather as a coordinating nexus. We are headed toward a Bolivarian hurricane. That's a quote from Maduro, an ally. It cannot be stopped absolutely by anyone. What is happening in Peru? What is happening in Chile? What is happening in Argentina? What is happening in Honduras, in Ecuador is just a little breeze. A hurricane is what is to come. It is absolutely impossible that Colombia remains how it is. It is absolutely impossible that Brazil remains how it is. There is no way, end quote. Well, five of those who have now fallen and all in the same manner. Uh, it was not just discontent from growing inequality that sustained Chile's unrest. One excru- um, exacerbating factor was the use of social media, specifically Twitter. Most of the accounts were not Chilean, but Venezuelan, Nicaraguan and uh, Cuban. On the other hand, the vast majority of tweets against the protests were Chilean. Well, in the case of Colombia, the unrest came in 2021. It followed the same pattern. Huge protests led to instability that benefited Pedro at the polls. He uh, is now ready to pay his debt. Less than 72 hours after the election, he announced that he will uh, reestablish relations with Maduro and reopen the border with Venezuela. This matters. Um, Colombia is the U.S. ally, most important um, ally uh, of the U.S. in Latin America, the largest recipient of U.S. security assistance in the hemisphere. Colombia has received over two million Venezuelan migrants fleeing the neighboring socialist uh, dictatorship, serving as a buffer for the U.S. southern border. The Andean nation has twice the population of Venezuela and unique access to Central America and to both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Well, unlike Reagan, uh, Biden is unlikely to do anything uh, to shore up the interests of the United States. And all this poses another global challenge at the worst possible time. Again, focusing on what's happening or what's happened now in Colombia. Meanwhile, FBI Director Christopher Ray on Wednesday said that China poses the biggest long-term threat to the economic and national security of the United States and Western allies and warned that Beijing is trying to shape the world by interfering in politics, business and more. Well, his warning comes um, just months after the administration's Justice Department, which oversees the FBI, ended the Trump era China initiative program aimed at preventing spying by the Chinese Communist Party. The Biden administration instead replaced it with a um, broader approach to counter nation state threats. A raid during a speech focused on common threats said the U.S. and the United Kingdom face at the MI5 uh, building in London Wednesday. That the FBI has no closer partner than the MI5 and that the two agencies work together on almost every mission they confront from the countering terrorism to cyber theft and transnational representation and repression of espionage. He pointed to the complex, enduring and pervasive danger that China poses to both nations and other Western allies. And saying, and I quote, we consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long term threat to our economic and national security. And by our, I mean both our nations, along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere. 
He added that it is the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party that pose the threat. We are focusing on countering not the Chinese people and certainly not Chinese immigrants in our countries who are themselves frequently victims of the Chinese government's lawless aggression. He warned that the Chinese government poses an even more serious threat to Western businesses than even many sophisticated business people realize and said the danger from China is complex and growing. Meanwhile, Huawei has launched new surveillance corps in a creepy military style rally. One banner displayed uh, behind saluting employees, victory, Huawei, victory, victory, victory. Now, there's been some uh, discussion about whether or not this is a an arm of the communist government, which the United States holds it is, and those who want to benefit from the cheap service that they will provide. Well, during a very bizarre military style ceremony that highlighted their uh, ties to the Chinese uh, security state, the tech company launched a new internal business unit focused on developing artificial intelligence powered surveillance technology. The new unit will be focused on streamlining the embattled Chinese company's efforts to become a worldwide leader in cutting edge AI surveillance technology that can be deployed to cities around the world, while at the same time being used, the United States argues, to spy on those users. The ceremony puts the lie to Huawei's global public relations and lobbying campaigns that strive to dispel the well-founded notion that its ultimate loyalties are with the Chinese Communist Party. Well, we are out of time, but we'll be back tomorrow. I hope you'll join us in the next uh, 22 hours. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.